chapter 1, Esther chapter 1. Noah, do you mind turning down my, my mic just a little bit? Esther chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want to say two things. The first is, um, as many of you know, um, we sent out an email. Um, and in the email, it talked about Marsha transitioning away from the position as administrative assistant into another position. And so we have that position open. So if you know of anyone that would um, be interested in the role, please contact Rob Chaplin. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is I want to thank you all for your prayers. Um, we've mentioned it uh, a few times in the service today, but um, your prayers uh, are being used by God to do some tremendous things in our midst. And I wish I had time to really talk through all of that, but I want you to know that God is at work. And I thank you for your prayers. I thank you for your giving. I thank you for, for all the ways in which you all serve the body. It's, it's having an eternal weight of glory. And so I praise the Lord for you and your prayers as well. All right, uh, today we're starting a new series on the book of Esther. And uh, one thing I want you to pray for is pray that I pronounce these names right as we go through it. I don't know if when last you've read through the book of Esther. These names aren't exactly easy. You know, I, I whipped out my Hebrew Bible to see if I could maybe get some insight into that. I finally um, turned on a, a Bible app and um, listened to uh, Kristen Getty read the Bible, and she has this pronounced, um, I think, Irish accent. I might get that wrong. One of you might correct me on that, maybe Scottish. I, I, I'm not quite sure. But um, this is God's holy word, and so as I read it, pay careful attention to it. It is food for your soul. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple um, to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of potpourri, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as much as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace and that belonged to King Ahasuerus. 
On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At, the king, at, the, at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shithar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Mersina, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who, who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persia, Persians and, Medi, and Medes, so that it may be repealed, may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and his princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we have come before you today as your people. And this that we have just read is your holy word. And so now, bring the word of God to bear on the lives of your people. Transform us, not only through the singing of your word, the praying of your word, and the reading of your word, but transform us now through the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that what we know not, we may teach it. 
what we have not, you might give us. And what we are not, you might make us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. When our children were younger, um, I used to play a little game with them. It's a simple little game. We would be driving along. We would be having family worship. And as we were driving along having family worship, I would uh, give a little instruction from God's word, from a text. And I would say, now it's time to pray. And so I would pretend to close my eyes and continue driving. Now, you might imagine that um, they would jump into a panic and say, Daddy, Daddy, open up your eyes. And I would say, no, God will take care of us, and we're driving along. And they would yell and scream and make noise. Little did they know that my eyes were open the whole time. I was just messing around with them. Now, as they got older, of course, they figured it out. There's no way I could drive with my eyes closed, but I got away with it for a few years. You know, isn't it interesting that sometimes we go through life like that? We think that God has his eyes closed toward us. Or maybe it might be the reverse. It may be that God isn't the one that has his eyes closed toward us, but we have our eyes closed towards him. You know, I remember during the pandemic, one of the things that became quite surreal to me is how many people felt that God was absent. And more than that, how many people just couldn't see ultimately what God was trying to do in their own lives. I don't know too much about you, but I know for me, whenever things happen, I struggle to see how God is at work. As I go through my life, even as a pastor, I pray, I, I worship, and I love the Lord. But if I were to be transparent to you, there are times when I don't see God working in my own life. I think that he has his eyes closed and we're all driving down the great highway of life. Perhaps he's playing a trick on me or you. Or again, the exact opposite. I feel like sometimes I'm driving along and I have my eyes closed. Unaware of his goodness and grace in every area of my life. Do you feel that way? I do. I do all the time. And that's why we need the teaching of the book of Esther. You know, the book of Esther shows us that even though God looks hidden in our lives, he's very much present. One of the themes of the book of Esther, if you read through it, is that um, God's not mentioned. Neither is the Bible, neither is prayer, neither is any religious act. Maybe the only one that we can point to is fasting and lamenting. But to the people of the book of Esther, God seems hidden. Or I would also say that they have their eyes closed to what the Lord is doing. But as one commentator wisely said, even though God is hidden, each and every part of this book reveals the character and goodness of God as he is seen 
through the doctrine of divine providence. Do you know that word? Well, that's a beautiful word. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in the Shorter Catechism, question number 11, says this. God's works of providence are his most holy and wise, powerful, preserving, and governing of all his creatures and their actions. Think about that for a moment. His most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing of all his creatures, you, the birds, the ants, the sparrows, whatever it is, all of that is under the governance of God. What a beautiful reality. That's what the book of Esther teaches. That even though God may be hidden, even though we think that we're driving along the highway of life and God has his eyes closed, or you feel like you have your eyes closed, at every point in our life, the God that seems hidden is there. It's there. He's there. I love how the psalmist says it in Psalm 121. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That's the providence of God. He's not asleep in your life. I know many of you have gone through some awful things. And you might feel as if God has been absent, but he's never absent. And so what I want to do over the next few months is I want us to look at the book of Esther. And I want us to look at the providence of God. And I want to awaken us to this reality that, beloved, God is not absent. He's not hidden. His eyes are always open, and his eyes are always on you. And the glorious reality of Scripture is that you and I get to see the glorious wonders of God, both in our life and in the life of others. That's what the book of Esther teaches, and that's what we're going to see. Let's look at chapter 1, and I want to begin. Uh, I'll, I'll make two points today, just two. Um, the first one is God's work in ways, or God often works in ways that seem strange to us. That's the first point I want to make. And the second point I want to make is God is at work even when he seems hidden. I might not get to the second point, because the first point is not only long, but it's glorious. You know, I, I was, I was uh, studying and putting together this sermon, and I broke out in dust all of it. Because it's glorious to think that we have a God that's intimately involved in our lives. I don't know about you, but that brings me great comfort, and it should you too. Should you too. So the very first one, God is at work that seems, uh, God works in ways that seem strange to us. Now the plot of Esther, the plot of Esther is this. That God wants to save his people who are in imminent danger from a genocidal maniac named Haman. That's the point of the book, right? Now, you might be asking yourself the question, if God wants to save his people from a genocidal maniac named Haman, how is he going to do it? Now, you and I might say, well, okay, 
I know what God should do. God should raise up someone from the Jews, a mighty man, a man of character, noble, a man of courage and discipline and integrity, a man of valor. But you know what we wouldn't do? We wouldn't choose a man like Ahasuerus. That's, that's not what you and I would do. In fact, his name, and the reason why they used Ahasuerus and not his Greek name, which is Xerxes I, is because the word Ahasuerus in Hebrew sounds like the word laughable. In, in other words, the text wants us to know that we're dealing with a laughable king. In fact, if you read through the book of Esther, it's always poking fun at the king. Or the different people that are in there, that, that are in the book. And so if you read through chapter 1, you get a laughable king. Now, now, how do we see this? Well, first of all, we see a king, so the writer does it in two ways. First of all, he says, look at this laughable king who is given over to pleasure. Completely given over to pleasure. I'll give you one example. Look at verse number 4. It says, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor of the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, and then he threw a feast for seven days. The man partied for 187 days. No wonder why the Bible said he was drunk. Could, could you imagine drinking for 187 days? Now listen to me. I've had the undistinguished privilege of drinking too much. I'm not proud of it. I'm not glorifying it. I'm just stating the facts. And, and if you've ever drunk too much one day, you know what you don't do the next day? Drink more. In fact, what you're doing the next day is trying to get out the contents in your stomach of what you put in it the day before. You don't spend 187 days getting drunk. But that's what the Bible says. Notice in verse number 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. That's a euphemism. He was drunk out of his mind. This man was partying like a rock star. If you, in fact, if you read chapter 1, the first nine verses or so reads like a rap video. I mean, he's bringing out his bling. He's showing it to everyone. Just showing off. He's drinking and having fun. The man is completely given over to pleasure. Not only that, but the text tells us that this man was completely given over to his passions. You know, after he got drunk and, and he's having a good time, notice in verse number 10, he commands his eunuchs to bring out Queen Vashti, his wife. Now, you know, the text is, is hard to read, but if you, if you look at this text and what he's asking her to do, it says, bring out Vashti before the queen with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. You know what he was asking his wife to do? To put on her crown, dress in something skimpy, and twerk for his pleasure. Now, I hate to use language like that, but that's what the text says. He, he invited his wife to dance and to show her beauty to his friends. What, what kind of husband does that? 
the kind of husband who's given over to his passions. Now let me pause and say that, that the writer of Esther on purpose is showing us a king who isn't worthy of delivering God's people. He's not like Jesus, is he? In fact, Jesus, King Jesus is the opposite. Jesus is not the drunken king, but the sober-minded king that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't the king that exploits us for his pleasure. Instead, he's the one that clothes us in his righteousness. Jesus isn't the king that uh, acts impulsively, but a king who is purposeful and does everything for our good and his glory. Jesus isn't the prideful and boastful king, but the humble king that lays down his life for his people. If you look at this text, the king that you can see is a joke, filled with his own passion and pleasure. But the king that you don't see, who is sovereign and working behind the king, uh, behind the scenes, is the glorious king who is acting on behalf of his people. And yet that king, that same king, is using the laughable thing. You might be saying, Pastor Dennis, how is it possible for God to use a king like this, given over to pleasure and his passions? How is it possible for God to do that? John Piper, in his book on providence, says this is a part of the counterintuitive wonders of God. You know, I love Piper. He uses these words, and you're just like, Piper, what are you talking about? The counterintuitive wonders of God? What does he mean by that? Simply put, it means that God acts in ways that you and I cannot understand. You and I would never choose to use a king like Ahasuerus, but God does. And if you look deeply in the Bible, you will see that God always does that. God always choose, chooses things that are counterintuitive and different from what we think. I'll give you a few examples. God chooses young David over his older brothers to be the king. God chooses Deborah over Barak to lead his people. God chooses a manger over a palace. And God chooses a cross over a throne. Over and over again, there are these glorious counterintuitive wonders that God shows us. And the question of scripture is this. Are you sensitive enough to what God is doing to see these counterintuitive facts? Are you aware enough? Are your eyes open to see the counterintuitive wonders of God? And I want to give you three practical ways in which we see this in our own lives. The first is this. God moves in us to do things we wouldn't normally do. And it's counterintuitive. I'll give you one example from my own life. I remember one morning in uh, January 20, uh, 2020, I woke up and I went to my wife and I said, Honey, I know that we're not supposed to be at CVPC until the summer, but I really feel like God is calling us to go there earlier, maybe in February. Now, you have to understand something of my wife. My wife is a Presbyterian Uh, My wife's motto is that we do things decently and in order. Uh, My motto is different. We do things impulsively and chaotically. (laughs) That's that's the way I roll, you know. 
But my wife is different. And I fully expected her to say, honey, we can't do that. That would require us taking our children out of school and homeschooling them. That would require us uh, working day and night to, to get our house ready to be sold. That would require us to do so many things. It's impossible for us to do that. But you know what my wife told me? She said, yes. And so we pulled our children out of school. We homeschooled them with relative success. We worked day and night to get our house together. We, in the providence of God, sold our home, bought our home. You people here at the church helped us, and we were so thankful for that. And, and it seemed counterintuitive and almost crazy. Why would we go earlier? But then I came here in February, preached one sermon, and the world shut down. And then it dawned on us that what God was doing was greater than what we thought we were doing. God knew that he, CBBC needed a pastor through the pandemic. And so he worked in counterintuitive ways to make sure you all have that. All the way from the Bahamas, by the way. Not exactly. Uh, there was tentacles. But I'm from the Bahamas, so it's the same thing. Same thing. You, it depends on how far you go back, right? <laughs> but, th but the point here is that that was counterintuitive. That's not what the Lewises do. But yet God worked. Let me ask you a question. How is God working counterintuitively in your life? Are you sensitive enough spiritually to see that? God needed a pastor here during the pandemic, and he worked in ways that seemed counterintuitive to do it. You know, something else that seems counterintuitive is the fact that God uses our own sin to draw us closer to himself. You know, we look at this passage and we see the drunkenness of, Queen, of King Ahasuerus, the impulsiveness, his anger, the fact that he's writing edicts, and you're wondering, how does God work in our sins? But the Bible tells us that he does. I, I love this statement by the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, section 5. It's one of my favorite passages in the confession. Listen to what it says, because this is a powerful point. How is God using your sin to accomplish his glory, for your good and his glory? Listen to this. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own heart to chastise them for their sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to, to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support unto himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Let me exegete that for you for a moment. Why does God still leave bitterness in your heart? Why does God still leave anger why does God still leave doubt in your heart? Why can't God deliver you from the sin of pornography, from the sin of lying? Perhaps God is using it 
to draw you to himself and full dependence on him. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a theology of God that allows him to use your sin for your good and his glory? That's what Esther chapter 1 says. And that's what the ark of scripture tells us. And you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, how is that possible? How is that possible that God uses our sin but is not a party to our sin, does not cause our own sin? Remember the definition of providence. His most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing of all his creation and their actions is still your actions. You're still the one doing it. But God is the one working sovereignly to bring about his good and holy end as a result. Now let me move quickly to the third thing. God uses what the hymn writer calls crowning providence to sanctify us. That's a part of the counterintuitive wonder of God. That God uses cancer and death and sickness and failure and anxiety. God uses all of these things in order to show that he is working in our lives. I read a story once of a successful lawyer who had everything he could imagine, but in a few hours lost everything in the great Chicago fire. In a few hours or in the same time frame, he lost his son to typhoid fever. Soon after that, his wife and remaining daughters were on a boat that sank, and only his wife survived. As he went out to get his wife, as the story goes, he penned um, these words that I think all of us are familiar with. When peace, like a river, attended my way, when sorrows like sea billows rolled, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. See, Horatio Spafford understood the providence of God, that that in all that happened to him, there was a counterintuitive providence. Which our pain and suffering are not random, but a part of the very story, fabric of God's kingdom. Paul says it best in Romans 8, 28, and we know to the one that loved God, all things work together for good those who are called according to his purposes. That's divine providence. Notice Paul doesn't say everything that happens to us is good. That, that's a key element. He's not saying that everything that happens to you is good. He's saying that everything that happens to us works toward the good. That's the difference. In our society today, we lump things into good and bad. If it makes us feel good or if it works out for our favor, we say, that's good. But then if something happens and we don't understand it, we say, that's bad. And therefore, God is bad because God has allowed this to happen. Or God has allowed this person to die or God didn't give me this. And so we look at that as bad. But the doctrine of Romans 8.28 says this, all things are working together for good. Not that everything is 
So in the counterintuitive wonders of God, God can still use every action in your life for your good and his glory. Now let me ask you a question. Can you see that? When you look at your life, if you were to scroll through your life, can you identify the counterintuitive wonders of God? Do you see a bunch of random, disconnected events? Beloved, I can tell you, when I scroll through my life, I can see the hand of God everywhere, even though I didn't know he was there. And you know, sometimes we say that God seems hidden in our life, but he never is. He never is hidden. In fact, according scripture when you read the story of the bible and you look at the book of esther and you say well god isn't in the book of esther you're right he's not mentioned he's not there but let me tell you he's everywhere else everywhere else you turn to every page of scripture and god is there and even even more than that even more than that god went one step further and wrote himself into his own story you know, recently I, I was reading an article, and an article was about writers who write themselves into their own books, and I came across W. Somerset Maugham, and he wrote a pretty famous work called The Razor's Edge, and in the plot of The Rage's, uh, Razor's Edge, Maugham um, writes himself into the story in which he sits down with the main character, a traumatized World War I pilot named, um, who was the main character named Larry. And Magnum devoted an entire chapter uh, to the conversation he had with Larry, a key turning point for Larry that leads him to discover God and become a saint. When I read that, I said, isn't that interesting? Because Jesus did the same thing. God, in the grand scheme of redemption, wrote himself in to the story of redemption so that he might make God known to us. And so that through Jesus Christ, we no longer say that God is hidden, but that he's present. That for each and every one of us inside here today, we can never wake up in the morning and wonder if God is here or near. Because in Jesus Christ, we see that he is. Brothers and sisters, I hope that brings you great comfort. As we go through the book of Esther, you will be privy to all sorts of counterintuitive wonders of God. And I pray that it might change you. That you might see that our God is present as we walk through life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we see in the book of Esther a king who seems to be in charge, ruler of 127 provinces on a throne. But yet, he's a laughable king. Instead, we see your hand of providence working in him to perform a greater task, which is to deliver your people. May we be reminded of your sweet counterintuitive providence that you work in and through us even when you seem hidden. 
we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.